0: You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemaineradio.com.
1: Here are some highlights from this week's program. Acadia is unique in the way its boundary weaves in and out of these communities. And so there's no hard line where an issue stops here and picks up here. You're really in it together.
2: Yeah, it just uh, gets in your soul. Um, I used to, I couldn't sleep for weeks before we would come, and I used to cry all halfway home when I left, and I always knew that I would live in Maine. I'd figure out how to get there and um, really especially to Mount Desert Island. This is Dr. Lisa Belisle, and you are listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number
3: 240, Acadia Centennial, airing for the first time on Sunday, April 24, 2016. This year marks 100 years of Acadia, Maine's only national park. Born officially on July 8, 1916, Acadia National Park on Mount Desert Island has brought joy to generations of people all over the world. Today, we speak with David McDonald, President and CEO of Friends of Acadia, Cookie Horner, Co-Chair of the Acadia Centennial Task Force, and her husband, Bill Horner, President of the MDI Historical Society. Thank you for joining us.
0: Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough, and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland. Easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaMe.com for more information.
3: For many people in the state, Mount Desert Island and Acadia are really um, probably one of their favorite places. So the individual that I'm speaking with today um, has a great job, I think. This is David McDonald, who currently serves as the president and CEO of Friends of Acadia, a not-for-profit organization with more than 4,500 members and a 30-year history as a philanthropic and community partner of Acadia National Park and Mount Desert Island. David joined Friends of Acadia in 2012 after a 20-year career in land conservation at the Maine Coast Heritage Trust. A longtime resident of Soamesville and a 1982 graduate of Mount Desert Island High School, David has been exploring the trails, woods, and waters of Acadia for most of his life. David loves enjoying the outdoors and the great state of Maine with his wife, Caroline, daughter, Eliza, and son, Jesse. Thanks for coming in.
1: Well, thanks for having me. It's a treat to be here.
3: Well... It's really interesting to me that you are, you have so loved the place that you came from that you are back there again mm-hmm. intensely. Um, because I grew up in Yarmouth and I have kind of gone out into the world and gotten educated and done various things. But I'm, but I still, I've, I'm have i back in Yarmouth.
1: You feel that pull?
3: Yeah, there's something that really, and I think that this is specifically been, been an interesting thing for Mainers.
1: Definitely. Yeah, I... My parents moved our family up there when I was about 10, so I wasn't born there, but, but I grew up there. I went to grade school and high school there and wanted to get out for college and, and lived here in southern Maine for a couple of years, but it really sort of snuck up on me that it's not the same. The Maine coast is beautiful. I was in Portland and Brunswick and that area, but I really kept, kept feeling myself pulled back to Mount Desert. And so to be able to go back there and get a job in the land conservation field, it's been, I've been very lucky.
3: Well, I think that's – it's always kind of interesting to read about the brain drain and about people leaving the state and people who are in our generation that um – have gone elsewhere and then return, because there is actually more opportunity in Maine than perhaps we realize. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. there are jobs in things like land conservation. There, there are jobs in um, ecological fields and in all sorts of areas.
1: Yeah, Maine has a, I think, has a growing reputation as a place for those kinds of fields. And I think there's more opportunity in a way than there was even when I was younger. I mean, I, I was lucky to make it back and get into this field, but I think there's a lot of promise now, for sure.
3: So the Friends of Acadia has been around for 30 years, but Acadia itself has been around. It's celebrating its 100-year anniversary Mm -hmm. this year. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, the centennial is pretty exciting. The park was founded in 1916, and um, so Friends of Acadia has been around for about a third of the history of the park, and um, we have been planning sort of a year-long community-based celebration of the park where lots of individuals and businesses and nonprofits really can celebrate what's important about the park to them and also uh, how they relate to the park and so um, one of the things that makes Acadia unique is the relationship with the surrounding community so um, and importantly we're not just celebrating the park we're thinking about the next hundred years as well so our slogan for the centennial is celebrate our past and inspire our future and that's really been the um, sort of ethos ethos of, of what we've been doing planning the centennial and now jumping in this year. So it's really fun.
3: What do you think it is about Acadia, a Mount Desert Island, that brings people really from all over the world to mm-hmm. visit? I,
1: I think you have to chalk some of it up to the sort of power of a national park, sort of that brand. I mean, Maine has a lot of gorgeous places, but Acadia is its one national park. And I think that resonates for people um, differently from other land trust preserves or state parks, which are wonderful, but I think a national park is sort of the gold standard in terms of conserved land and recreational opportunities and, and multiple public values. So I think that has a lot to do with it. But I also just think it's a very, very unique island. There's there's no place like it, really, in terms of the concentration of mountains and lakes and ocean and trails and carriage roads. It's It's got a lot in a very small package. By national park standards, Acadia is very small, compared to the western parks, which are millions and millions of acres. Acadia is only about 45,000 acres, so it's it's a nice compact package.
3: Having spent time up in Acadia, I've enjoyed learning bits and pieces of its history Hmm. and the history of the island, and it's really quite fascinating. It's been drawing um, intellectuals and uh, summer visitors for generations. Yes.
1: Yeah, you're right, and that's the other part of what makes it my favorite place in the world is not just the natural beauty, but the richness of the community as well. It still has an incredible mix of people. Um, and hundred over 100 years ago, people were being drawn for the hiking. Uh, they were being drawn uh, as artists to the landscapes. They were being drawn um, for the science, really. A lot of the um, genesis of Acadia National Park came from some students from Harvard, who came up and and did botanical studies and and camped up there and just tromped around. And so you had this convergence of of all these different values that really did put the place on the map. And thank goodness a lot of people had the foresight to to conserve the place because it could have been easily developed and and had a very different future.
3: Acadia also uh, was impacted by a fire that took place in Bar Harbor. And we had... um the College of the Atlantic. We had people from the College of the Atlantic come in, and mm. we talked about the impact on the college. How was yes. how how was the impact on the state park? I mean, the, on the fire
1: park? The fire of nineteen forty seven. It was a year when there was quite a few forest fires around Maine, and um, in October, a, a fire started on Mount Desert. It burned about half the park at the time, as you said, mostly in Bar Harbor on the eastern side of the island, and it really um, it did a couple of things. At the time, it, it was part of what started to forge a closer relationship, actually, between the park and the community, because you go through a trauma like that together, and you had park rangers and local firemen fighting side by side. So there was a bonding to it, but it was also devastating to, to the economy um, and also to the, to the forest of the park. Of course, that regenerated its come back. Um, if you look at an aerial or if you're hiking in Acadia, you can see the line where the fire burned, which is now all hardwood that has regenerated. And then on the western side of the island, it's more softwood and spruce and fir. Um, the soils in the park, um, the bi- you know, the, the biology, really, of the park has changed irreparably by the fire. Um, nature does bounce back, um, but it is an eye-opener, and it makes us think today about what other... Um, you know, natural changes will the park go through in the future. We who have grown up there, I who have grown up there, have this picture of Acadia, which is what it is right now, but it's going to change. It's going to keep changing. And the fire of 47 is an example of how it already changed dramatically in our past.
3: It also changed dramatically because at one point it was um, a summer ground of Native Americans. Mm -hmm. And that isn't something that is as much recognized anymore, although there's a muse- museum. Yes, the Abbey
1: Museum uh, is an excellent museum um, dedicated to Native American culture and the history, not just on Mount Desert Island, but, but in that part of Maine. And the park is very committed to, you know, celebrating certainly that chapter of, of, of the history as well. So yeah, I mean, uh, the Native Americans took, took care of the place without having to call the national park. I mean, they're you know, it was a very sacred place, still is, and, um, you know, they were fantastic stewards before the threats and the pressures of colonization and, you know, the 19th century came along.
3: You spent 20 years with the Main Coast Heritage Trust, so you have done land conservation for, well, that amount of time. <laughs> What have you found? Um, are similarities and differences between the job that you mm. left and the job that you have had since 2012?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, at Main Coast Heritage Trust, I was mostly working with landowners and families, coming up with conservation strategies for their for their properties, whether it's a farm or a or an island or a woodlot. Um, so, being a partner with a with a landowner or a family around the future of their land was very very satisfying. It was fun. It was fascinating, and it was a real partnership. Um, what I lo- what's I, I miss that in, in my job now. But what I really love is that um, very democratic feel of a national park. It just you've got people from all over who know this place and love it and use it, and it's theirs. It's it belongs to the American people, and. That's very powerful, and I, I didn't realize just how much I'd enjoy that until I got into this job. It's, it's, um, it makes it, it feels like an honor, really, to be working on behalf of a national park because it really does inspire people from all walks of life, whereas the land trust work is fantastic. For a long time, it's sort of been a very well-kept secret. That's changing now. Land trusts are doing great work getting out in the community more, but, but um, uh, the jump to, to working for a national park has been great.
3: You you brought up the the community that um, coexists with Acadia, and I think that that's an important thing to discuss because um, it's not just. Although you know the downtown Bar Harbor area has great shops uh-huh. and it has um, great restaurants, but it's it's not just that. I mean, there's a whole community that continues around the island that you know, working waterfronts, Correct. people who are making a living. Fishing and mm-hmm. lobstering. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me what intersections the Friends of Acadia has with this, these groups.
1: Yeah, our mission. Actually, a number of years ago, we cha- before before I came to the organization, but they changed the mission. Not just to serve the park, but also to serve the surrounding communities, which is really important and powerful. I think because Acadia is unique in the way its boundary weaves in and out of these communities. And so there's no hard line where an issue stops here and picks up here. You, you're really in it together. And there have been stresses over the years. There's sort of an inherent distrust of the federal government or suspicion, perhaps, among a lot of us Mainers. And um, well, I think the park has done an outstanding job, um, they've had to tend with some, you know, not ill will, but Unease at, at times. Um, there was a concern for many years that the park would just sort of expand and take over the entire island and you know force people off their land. Well, they worked very hard to pass a, a permanent boundary. Senator Mitchell in the mid '80s worked on that, and you know that put a lot of that to rest. There's tremendous economic synergy between you, you mentioned the town of Bar Harbor and there's you know four other towns on the island as well, three other towns and then some offshore island towns, but the park is just the economic generator for many, many people in that community. And so I think there's a growing appreciation for that. And there's more of a resolve to work together. Um, right after I started on the job at Friends of Acadia, we endured one of those horrible government shutdowns when Congress couldn't figure out the budget. And so the park, the gates were closed for I think it was 16 or 17 days, the most beautiful October days that you could imagine. And and that was a I don't want to say it was a wake-up call, but it really underscored for many in the community how important the park was and, and to the park how important the community was. So, And the centennial that we're working on in 2016 really is trying to key off of that and and really celebrate this connection between the community and the park. Um, so many families are still there who were founding families of the park. A lot of great nonprofits. You mentioned the, the LA, um, COA, uh, the Jackson Lab, Main Coast Heritage Trust, the Abbey Museum. There's so many institutions that have sprouted up, not because of the park, but in part because of the energy and, and interest that the park brought to our community. So it's made for a, a terrific community. And I think people get grumpy now and then with, with the park and maybe their management decision or a bureaucracy here or there. But But for the most part, the centennial, I think, has really helped celebrate the park and let everybody realize how, how important it is to all of us.
3: It's always amazing to me when I go up to visit um, how large Mount Desert Island <laughs> is. People think, oh, it's an island. How big can it be? Yeah. But it's it's big. Yes. I mean, if yeah. you're driving to Northeast Harbor or Southwest Harbor or um, you go off the island and you go to Trenton, I mean, mm-hmm. it's just, mm-hmm. it's really it's it's vast. Yes, yeah. it's, it's quite varied. It's
1: diverse. Yeah, that's what's wonderful about it. And we talked about the fire, how that changed the diversity of the island, and um, you know the mountains and the geology, the coastline. There are so many different options for you as a visitor in terms of what what your interests might be. And you sometimes you forget that you're on an island. But you know if you've if you've grown up there and spent a lot of time there, it still does have that that feel of, um, of an island, which is great. But, yeah, it's the biggest island on the main coast.
3: Tell me some of your favorite places there.
1: <laughs> um, I love the park in the winter. I mean, this weekend was out cross-country skiing and, you know, snowshoeing. And um, I think Sargent Mountain is my favorite mountain. It's not as tall as Cadillac, but it, it doesn't have a road to it, which makes a big difference. And it's got some fabulous trails going up it. Um, I love Ilaho, which is sort of the remote unit of the park out in Penobscot Bay. Um, go out there with my family, you know, and camp and the lean-tos out there. That's just a completely different experience. Um, and the carriage roads are just an incredible resource. They're, they're very unique, again, in the National Park Service and even in Maine, I think, in terms of having this this network of, of gravel, crushed gravel roads to ski on, to bike on, to, to jog on. It's That's a part of the park that I'm we use all the time and it's just it's just a great recreational resource and and cultural cultural treasure really
3: I'm sure that people ask you when they come to visit um, what they should go to what (laughs) what places they should hit before they leave Mm -hmm. what do you usually say
1: I encourage them to get out on the carriage roads I encourage them to get out on the trails Um, get out on the water I mean taking the mailboat out to the Cranberry Isles or or taking a you know, a little sail out of Bar Harbor or whale watch, getting offshore and looking back at the island and experiencing the wildlife and the beauty from a boat is fabulous. Um, uh, Do a kayak trip. Again, get out on the water and and get a little closer to the wildlife. The island can get pretty busy in the summer, but once you get offshore, it really, that kind of melts away. So if it's at all possible to to get out on the water, I, I highly recommend that.
3: I think one of my favorite visits to um, Mount Desert was included a trip out to Frenchboro, mm-hmm. and it we went on this boat that mm-hmm. was owned by a private lobsterman. Um, lobsterman, lobster yeah. And um, there was a it was a fundraiser, so they had a little lobster bake. Yes, and we yeah. We walked around the island, and it really somehow spoke to me in a way that um, I hadn't experienced before at Mount Desert because it was. It was this little community. Mm -hmm. But I think that those little communities do exist um, on Mount Desert, all over the place.
1: They do, they do. Frenchboro is unique. There's nothing like Frenchboro um, and being that far out at sea and having that close-knit fishing community right around the harbor and then having the incredible natural beauty of the rest of the island. And again, that's a project that we worked on at Maine Coast Heritage Trust to conserve all that rugged shoreline and the trails. but yeah, Mount Desert has those quiet places too. And, um, uh, you know, being able to get off the beaten path and being able to explore the park. Uh, a lot of times our family goes out at supper time. You know, we get a picnic and we go out, and that's when there's nobody out there. We'll go to Sand Beach and we've got it all to ourselves, and that's really fun.
3: As you were talking about how special this place is to m- many people, really, all over the world. The word sacred mm-hmm. um, really rose to the top for me. That this is a place that it's sacred because people go there with their families. They go there by themselves when they're trying to sort things out in their lives. They go there to get engaged. They go there to get married. Um, some people, like you did, are raised there mm-hmm. and have, and other people, like um, the Lunt family on Frenchboro, generations have been there. Mm-hmm. That's a very big. Well, I guess you recognized it. It's an honor to it, really be associated with this sacredness.
1: It is. And, I mean, it's a, it's a big responsibility. Um, the Park Service takes it very seriously. Um, their resources, unfortunately, are limited. And that's why Friends of Acadia exists, to be able to supplement what Congress can do through the budget. Um, we provide, you know, thousands of volunteers. We raise millions of dollars. And people do want to give back. Uh, that's why Friends of Acadia was formed. People wanted to wanted a venue to be able to give back to this place that they loved, and that continues stronger than ever, thirty years in. And um, what's interesting is that you know we do we do want Congress to continue to fund our national parks. I, I don't want to get on a soapbox, but that the, the park can't manage this incredible resource that gets almost three million vis- visits a year without adequate staff and funds. And um, uh, people get that, they, they really do. And that's why we've been able to be successful is that people want to help um, protect this place that is sacred to them. And, and I also think that as beautiful it is, and you feel the connection, I think you also feel a connection to what people did to protect it. Again, I, whether you're in Central Park, or Acadia National Park, you sort of think about the foresight of those people 100 years ago, and it's it's powerful. I think that's part of what resonates for people, not just the beauty of the place, but the fact that people acted on that. That strikes a chord.
3: Well, I think I think that's absolutely right and um when I was a resident at Maine Medical Center, one of the doctors that we worked with was Richard Rockefeller mm-hmm. and his uh, family of course was involved with the creation of this park yes. and they still have their own island Um, which they maintain a farm on. Yeah, Bartlett, yes. And we went camping there when Mm -hmm. I was a resident. Mm -hmm. Um, And unfortunately, Richard passed away in a plane crash, tragically, um, not too long ago. And I, I think about what a gift that his family gave. Mm, because mm. I knew him as a person. Yes. Yeah. And I knew some of his family members as people.
1: I did too. Yeah. No, Richard was a good friend of mine too at Main Coast Heritage Trust and, and very much a inspiration to, to me and a lot of people. And again, what's amazing is his grandfather did great things a hundred years ago. Well, so did Richard in his time. I mean they very much continue that legacy and Richard's work up and down the Main Coast is so so important Um, and um, it's a it's a wonderful tradition but but yet he he came back to that place on Bartlett Island that was his sole place for sure Um, you know all of us have that spot a lot of us on the main coast that 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 really resonates and uh, uh, Bartlett definitely was that for Richard
3: so that being the case knowing that this is a place of history and natural beauty and sacredness and that you are the president and CEO of Friends of Acadia. How can other people become Friends of Acadia, or how can other people help with your effort or Mm -hmm. celebrate the centennial? Yeah,
1: yeah. We're very inclusive. Um, uh, We have lots of opportunities for people to volunteer, get their hands dirty out on the trails, We've, you know, we we have people from all over the country and all over the world who are members who, you know, follow our Facebook page and our, you know, social media just to feel that connection while that they, while they're away from this place they love, and in terms of the centennial, um, I've just been blown away by the number of businesses and individuals who have come on board as we call them Acadia Centennial Partners. We have over three hundred now who are either organizing an event, designing a product doing a painting writing a book writing a poem making a film i mean there's just people who want to want to be part of this and um uh, people should definitely check out the centennial website which is um acadiacentennial2016.org and there's just there's a list of all the partners there's a calendar that's in the process of being filled out there's so many options for how to be part of this year-long celebration um, and then linked to that is our website if you want to learn more about our projects or our volunteer drop-in workdays throughout the summer um, or, or how to sign your kid up for the trail crew for the summer. I mean, it's just, you know, countless opportunities.
3: And the website for Friends of Acadia
1: is? Friends um, Friendsofacadia.org. Yes. Yeah, thanks.
3: Well, this has inspired me to... Um celebrate the 100 years of Acadia and really it, it, you know it does cause me to think about all the times that I have spent yes. in, in our national park and feel very grateful for it so I appreciate all the work that you and the Friends of Acadia are doing and I appreciate your coming in and talking with us today we've been speaking with David McDonald who is the president and CEO of Friends of Acadia
0: Thanks
1: thank you
3: so much for coming in
1: yeah it's been a treat thank you Experienced
0: chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Maine's seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit theroomsportland.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is Portland's largest gallery and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting work of contemporary Maine artists, and we also host a series of monthly solo shows in our newly expanded space. The current show schedule includes Eric Hopkins, Matthew Russ, Jane Damon, William Crosby, and Ruth Hamill, to name a few. Please visit our website for complete show details at artcollectormaine.com.
3: Today it is my great pleasure to speak with Bill and Cookie Horner. And actually we were going to speak just with Cookie and she brought her husband with her and I said, hey, I would really like to talk to Bill too, so she agreed. Cookie moved to Mount Desert Island in 1975. She is the co-chair of the Acadia Centennial Task Force and she is also on the Acadia National Parks Volunteer Trail Crew. And I happen to know that she was the school nurse at MDI High School for 17 years. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having us. And thank you for bringing, of course, your husband, Bill, who is the president of the MDI Historical Society. He is a native of Bar Harbor and an author of several articles in their journal, which is called Chebacco. Thanks for coming in.
4: Pleasure to be here.
3: I know we kind of roped you into being actually on the radio, so I appreciate your having that kind of willingness.
4: Well, thank you. I will limit my remarks. <laughs> okay.
3: I'm excited to have you here because it is a hundred years now that we've had the Acadia National Park in our fair state, recognized as a national park. So it's, it's a very exciting time for us, and both of you have felt passionately about Acadia National Park for a long time. How did you get involved
2: in this? It, with the park? Yeah, with the park. Well, I always wanted to work on the volunteer trail crew, so when I retired From my nursing job, um, that was the first thing I did was sign up for Trail Crew, which goes out um, three times a week—Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday—and it's just a great group of people. Um, There's kind of a steady year-round group, um, and um, then we get lots of summer visitors who give time when they're here when they're in um, Acadia on vacation, and uh, so the Trail Crew. You know, snips and clips and uh, cuts vistas and rakes ditches and makes trails. And it's just really fun to help keep the park beautiful.
3: Cookie, you've been coming to Maine as a summer resident before moving here in 1972. But since 1946?
2: (laughs) When I was one year old.
3: Well, that's impressive because not that many people have that sort of longevity um, as far as being a visitor um, to Mount Desert Island.
2: Yeah, it just uh, gets in your soul. Um, I used to, I couldn't sleep for weeks before we would come, and I used to cry all halfway home when I left, and I always knew that I would live in Maine. I'd figure out how to get there, and um, really, especially to Mount Desert Island.
3: You're originally from Philadelphia? Right. So, how did your family start coming to Maine in the first place?
2: Uh, my grandparents did. Um, they knew other people. I mean, there were a lot of um, people from Philadelphia, New York, and Boston who came in the summers, and they were one of them.
3: You were telling me that the place that you stayed in on West Street was one of the few houses that did not get burned down in the Great Fire.
2: Right. And um, I, I don't know exactly what year they bought it, but um, it's... Uh, going to, it's being renovated right now. We sold it in the early 80s and um, another family had it until just last year and now um, I'm really glad to see it restored.
3: Bill, you have a very different connection to MDI and Acadia and in fact um, your connection is, uh, well, it's impressive in that there probably aren't that many people who can say that they were actually born there. Natives. Natives, yes.
4: Yeah, I was born there in uh, September of 1941 um, and went to public schools, Uh, loved growing up there. And um, as I said before, I think to grow up in an environment like that with a national park there and also knowing so many people who worked at the national park, one of my parents best friends uh, was a fellow named Paul Favor, who was the park naturalist. and uh, So that's what kind of got me oriented toward thinking about maybe I'll be a park ranger someday.
3: Which I love and is also interesting, because instead of being a park ranger at first, you had a very different job.
4: Yes. you know how we make decisions. We sort of climb the tree, and we come to a branch, and I knew I was interested in biology, loved biology, loved natural history. And as I went to college and got into that, it uh, became increasingly clear that I wanted to try to be a doctor. So uh, got a little further out on the branch, and you know how it goes. Uh, but the love of home never left. In fact, uh, Bar Harbor was my first practice location when I finished my training in 1972. And I was there for about 10 years. So it's really firmly rooted, I think, in both of us. Uh, Cookie almost can claim a birthright at this point.
2: Pretty close if you're one. Yeah, they've got to at least give you honoraries to Never, us. never. You're just always a year-round summer person. <laughs>
3: Well, I understand both sides of my family are from Maine, but I was born my father's last year of medical school in Vermont, so I cannot claim to be a native, which is a little ironic. So you and I, we we feel each other's pain on this (laughs) one. But fortunately, it's a nice group that still lets us honorarily be here. Um, Tell me about the Acadia Centennial Task Force.
2: Well, um, the Centennial Task Force... um, was uh, created from Friends of Acadia and Acadia National Park in figuring out how to put together a community group that would help Acadia to celebrate its centennial. We began actually um, in December of 2012 with our planning and um, some of the people on the task force are from the park staff and uh, the staff of Friends of Acadia and board members of Friends of Acadia and some community people. And um, so we've been working really, really hard for all this time, and now it's bearing fruit. It's very exciting.
3: What are some of your favorite things that are going to be happening this year that you've been working on?
2: Um, it's hard to know where to begin, but we um, we really wanted to reach out to um, Community wide, from the whole of the park—not just Mount Desert Island, but all the way from Winter Harbor, the Scutic Peninsula to Alejo—and actually throughout the state and all the communities in between, the surrounding communities—and um, hope that they would partner with us. And to our astonishment, we now have more than three hundred and fifty partners, and it's still growing. And um, that's just really exciting. And. Um, People can become partners with a financial donation, or if they're nonprofits, they can plan a program or an event. They can produce a product and um, sell it and give a percentage to Friends of Acadia for programs in the park, or they can buy one of the existing products and do the same. And um, so it's just a huge variety of things. We've uh, started off in January with. Um, the kickoff event, which was the baked bean supper for more than 400 people. And we um, aired for the first time a centennial film done by a young um, movie maker, Peter Logue, um, featuring um, among others, <laughs> Bill and me, mm-hmm. and, and quite a f- many other people, um, to as kind of an archival um, product of how, how the centennial was celebrated and um, hopefully that'll go into our time capsule at the end of the year. Um, All of the local libraries um, from, you know, throughout the surrounding communities uh, celebrated with a big community read in February where they read three books, um, a young person's book, Spoon Handle by Ruth Moore, and um, The End of Night about dark skies. Um, or not, not dark skies. And um, then there was also a winter festival held between Camp Beechcliffe and Skudik, um, for families, for children with all kinds of activities. It was supposed to be all snow-related, and there wasn't any snow, so they just came up with all sorts of great other things. And um, so there's so many things coming up. I... Um, uh, give you a few other ideas um the uh one of the family things that's going to start in april is acadia quest the centennial edition um which is youth and family centered challenges and you do it at your own pace and um the uh, Friends of Acadia and the Interpretive Rangers in Acadia National Park put it together. And it's the idea is to get kids just out there and loving it, and it's um, sort of an experiential scavenger hunt. And it goes on throughout the year. And um, there's going to be um, the opening reception at the Abbey Museum for their new um, exhibit, um, which is cataloging their time in Acadia from 12,000 years ago and um, there are actually six musical choruses and festivals, each of whom have commissioned an original piece of music honoring Acadia. And the first one is the Acadia Choral Society in early May and the Bagaduce Chorale later um the bar harbor brass week faculty is giving a huge brass concert in june mount desert summer Crow, bar harbor music festival it's very exciting um park science day which is one of the um, events that acadia national park is actually responsible for entirely and that's going to be the reopening of their nature center at surdemont Um, with an emphasis on climate change, and that's another um, family and child-friendly event. Uh, That's in June. Um, And, of course, the Fourth of July parade will be themed to the centennial with the um, uh, park in full dress at the head of the line and hopefully lots of floats about the centennial. Uh, There's going to be an open garden day where all the garden clubs on the island are... um, kind of uh, planned it together and there'll be some old gardens, historic gardens and some newer gardens to, for everybody to see. Um, there, uh, The Maine Historical Society in Portland um, is going to have um, an exhibit that um, I think starts in June or May and goes through till December about the conception and design and layout of Acadia National Park. There's a few. <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of things to choose
3: from. Yeah. So anybody, if you have an interest in history or gardens, or if you have a child, you can just kind of pick the thing that yeah. best celebrates 100 years of Acadia. Yeah. Bill, you're the president of the MDI Historical Society, and I know that you and I were talking before we came on about the fact that you were you were a trauma surgeon. You actually, you you did a very different thing, and now you've you've gone back to this these interests as a naturalist and a historian. Um, what are some of the things about the history of MDI that particularly appeal to you?
4: Well, I think it goes back to my being a native son in the sense that uh, I'm very fortunate to have family roots there. And one of the things I wanted to do when I retired from surgery is to more intensively study some of my family history as it relates to the island history in general and uh, get involved with the history community um, and do some writing. Um, And my initial research uh, focused on the group of men who came together in initially 1901, called themselves the Hancock County Trustees of Public Reservations, and they were a combination of summer people And local people who uh, sort of built the foundations for the subsequent land acquisitions that, in series, ultimately became uh, Acadia National Park. And my great grandfather, as it turns out, was one of those original founders, along with uh, President Elliot from Harvard and a number of other luminaries of the day who had great education and great wealth so that they could uh, formulate this idea. So that was uh, an area in which I was very interested in what motivated these people, got very interested in the history of conservation going back to the early part of the 19th century and how it came to pass on Mount Desert Island.
3: I know that both of you um, love the trails of Acadia. Do you have any favorites that you visit on a regular basis?
4: Absolutely.
2: <laughs> we do, but actually we're um, we're doing a... Uh, we decided we're going to do a personal centennial challenge and do the 26 major peaks, which is adds up to about 48 miles, and then finish the rest on the trails and carriage roads to do 100 miles. But we decided we would do them in a different way because you sort of end up doing you know going on the same trails in the same way so we're going to try to do them from some different directions different trails.
3: And when is this going to start for you?
2: We already started. Excellent. Yes.
3: And it's so some of the trails are actually clear and available yeah. to walk on even now. Well the
2: carriage roads are closed still. Um, actually they may have opened them again because it froze up but mm-hmm. they usually close them to all traffic including foot traffic when the ground is soft that they'll open soon.
3: Cookie, I know that um, there are a few more important events that you want to make sure that we talk about.
2: Yes. Um, One of them, uh, this is a very exciting one, is the um, Maine Windjammer Association. Um, They are going to bring six, seven, or eight windjammers up on the 2nd of August, and they are going to um convene out in the western way and then sail up some sound and it's just going to be a glorious sight and um it will give people an idea of what it might have been like a hundred years ago um one of them actually did ply the waters of mount desert a hundred years ago and so that's that's really going to be an exciting event and um and then um in August, there's also going to be a reenactment of the celebration of Acadia's founding, with um, the descendants of people who were originally involved, including Bill. And um, I just wanted to mention also um, he mentioned um, Elliot, and I'd like to mention um, George B. Doerr, <laughs> who is known as the founding father of Acadia National Park, and. One of the events happening this week is um, the uh, sort of formal launch of the first-ever biography of George B. Doerr by um, historian Ronald Epp, and that's happening um, this week. And um, I know Bill has already...
4: I've read the book. It's phenomenal. (laughs) It's a monumental achievement. He read the whole thing yesterday. I'm so (laughs)
2: envious. Yeah, and uh, and then um, the big event that Acadia National Park is doing is um, because this is, of course, the co-centennial with the National Park Service. Also, you know, and so um, August twenty-seventh will be a big event at Jordan Pond where um, there will be, you know, speakers and. Um, that's sort of the closest date to the actual date of the anniversary of the National Park Service. And there will be um, 100 Junior Rangers sworn in on that day. And we're going to have a chorus of 100 singers to sing This Land Is Your Land and America the Beautiful. It's going to be a fabulous day. And we will hope for good weather.
3: Between the two of you, you have six children and 11 grandchildren, seven of whom live on MDI. Will they be part of these festivities?
4: Well, we're hoping uh, <laughs> we can get them out for the, at least some of the remaining 24 peaks.
2: Yeah, yeah, sure.
4: But, um, yeah, all of them are active people. Um, our oldest, uh, who's a freshman in college, can't wait to get home for the summer. She's got her summer job lined up already, and um, she's eager to get out there. And so another one
2: is volunteering at Friends of Acadia, helping with the centennial uh, duties.
3: And I think you said your youngest grandchild is two? Yeah. They, they
2: live in North Carolina, so sadly. You m- so you might have to <laughs> But they will be here for a week in the summer, and we'll have them out doing things in the park for sure. There you go. They're old enough to go up a small mountain now.
3: A lot has changed in the years since, Bill, you were born there and Cookie, you started visiting when you were one. What are some of the positive changes that you've seen with Acadia and MDI in general?
2: Well, uh, the park trails and carriage roads are in much better shape. Um, You know, there, there was a, I don't know, 30 years ago, They weren't in such great shape and um, but there's now an endowment to um, you know keep the trails going and the trail volunteers there's so many of them that help and so that's a that's a huge change Um,
4: yeah my window is about 55 years um, and obviously i can see a lot of changes in the towns themselves Um, i think it's particularly striking in bar harbor which is now um, entirely a tourist economy. And of course, over the last decade or decade and a half, we've seen that boom with the addition of cruise ships and so on and so forth. Um, But we've also seen a wonderful influx of incredible retired people. Um, There's an entity called Acadia Senior College, which goes on among other places on MDI and it's really a pleasure to live there in our retirement now and that's a demographic that's very very much changed since I was a kid. Um, I think the other thing is as part of this centennial it's an opportunity for us to look back a hundred years and look at some of the issues that were hot at that time and think about them now and one that immediately comes to mind of course is the automobile which between 1903 and 1913 there was a so-called decade of uh, the so-called automobile wars because uh, automobiles were prohibited on mount Desert island for at least a decade beyond their arrival elsewhere in the state and there was a big kind of not necessarily so nice on occasion civic discourse between people representing both points of view and it's interesting to look back at that as for example the Seal Cove Museum is doing with their exhibit and put that into the context of some of our present-day concerns about automobiles and the issues raised for the park um, in terms of the quality the visitor experience because of the great number of uh, vehicles that we have to deal with.
2: And the park and the um, Centennial Task Force have taken some really proactive steps to um, address the concerns about visitor you know spike in visitation and um, so uh, of course we have the Explorer bus system which is fantastic and um, been there for about 16 years and um so we're we're messaging um to prospective visitors to plan their visits thinking about how they can have the best quality experience and that includes leaving your car at your hotel and taking the bus and walking on the trails to get into the park or taking a bike and um how to um go to places maybe that are a little different than some of the most iconic ones or go at different times and when it's not so busy and also um, to think about not just right there but spreading out um, and seeing what other adjoining communities have to offer and exploring that which is good for Acadia and good for those communities. And um, so it's, and also to realize that the centennial activities are year long and that they don't have to come right in the middle two weeks of July and August. And so we're trying to get that message out in all kinds of um, media.
3: Cookie, how can people find out about the uh, centennial activities on Acadia?
2: Go to the Acadia website, AcadiaCentennial2016.org and um, it's a terrific website. Um, There are at least 100 events posted on there. You can read about all the 350 partners. There are products that you can um, find out where to buy them or some that you can buy right online. There are so many products that are being produced for the centennial from jam to beer to coffee mugs to... um, all kinds of artwork, all kinds of crafts. Um, oh, and I thought of crafts, reminded me, there's going to be a fantastic quilt show and also a rug-hooking show um, that'll be on in May and June and July. So that's an exciting thing Not for to people. Not art,
4: art, art, Yes, art.
2: lots of art, <laughs> of course. All the, you know, I mean, the artists were the first ones there after, so. you know, and starting in the 1800s. And so... Um, There's just so much art and art galleries. Everything's themed to Acadia, and um, it's going to be wonderful.
3: And you said the Abbey Museum will be um, featuring people who were there probably even before the artists, I would guess. Oh,
2: way before. The Native Americans. Thousands of years. Thousands of years. So that's a nice... Before before Champlain supposedly (laughs) discovered it. Well
3: there's a lot of excitement going on up at Acadia, so I appreciate your both coming down and having a chance to talk with you. We've been speaking with Cookie Horner, who moved to MDI, Mount Desert Island, in nineteen seventy-five. She's the co-chair of the Acadia Centennial Task Force and also in the Acadia National Parks volunteer trail crew. And as an added bonus, we've been also speaking with her husband. Bill, Dr. Bill Horner, who is the president of the MDI Historical Society. He is a native of Bar Harbor and the author of several articles in their journal, Chabacco. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having us.
4: Thanks very much.
3: You've been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 240, Acadia Centennial. Our guests have included David McDonald and Cookie and Bill Horner. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit LovemainRadio.com. Love Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love Main Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa, and see my running travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful1 on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Maine Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love, Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial I hope that you have enjoyed our Acadia Centennial show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life.
0: Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Berlin City Honda, The Rooms by Harding Lee Smith, Maine Magazine, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Kelly Chase. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasson. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Susan Grisanti, and Dr. Lisa Belai. For more information on our host's production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com. Here's an excerpt from Lisa's interview with Pius Ali from next week's program.
3: What are some of the issues that you hear from students or from parents um, who are from other countries or have a different religious background and they're trying to interact with a school or a community? What, what types of things come up that you hear about?
5: Well, uh, so I'm going to take off my hat as a staff member for um, Portland Empowered. Um, I wear so many hats. And I'm also not speaking as a school board member. I'm speaking as me, somebody who does a lot of work um, in the community. Um, uh, I think uh, some of the issues that comes up uh, in my engagement uh, with uh, families um, and um, uh, students in the community is uh, um, some of the claims that the students or some of the families that made are that either there's a language barrier uh, on both sides or misunderstanding or miscommunication of a uh, situation. Uh, with the young people, um, um, the Portland Public School is very diverse in terms of uh, racial um, and language and uh, religion. So we have uh, kids who are coming from many different backgrounds. Um, the staff at Portland schools uh, do their best uh, to understand um, where and who is coming from where. Uh, unfortunately, it's um. um, um it's uh, a uh, how do you say it? It's a tall list of things that you have to learn, and um, so there's bound to be um, somebody being called names and and um, or somebody being referred to as this or that uh, by other students who may not necessarily even know what they are saying. Uh, yeah, so there are situations like that. Not specifically, you hear stories here and there. Um, yeah, um, uh, with the um, um, i'm a muslim so i have a, um i talk to people a lot in the muslim community in the immigrant muslim communities in uh, uh um the recent um um na- the nationalist the recent national platform political rhetoric, uh did yes, um increase um or created um um a few instances here in portland where uh, there's a parent um, a woman from iraq who was in at a bus stop she didn't specifically said which stop where uh, somebody um was talking to her and the person look at her and spit on her face um and this one doesn't speak any english so she doesn't even know what to say and uh, there was an instant where someone was sitting at a waiting room in one of the big hospitals in portland and uh, another patient uh, uh start yelling at her and telling her to go back where she came from because uh, her people don't like Americans, what is she doing here? Um, In both situations, these people don't necessarily speak good English, so they didn't know how to um, react. Uh, And it's unfortunate that uh, both situations happen to women uh, based on the way they look, because uh, I can walk down the street, um, uh, yes, I'm a black man, Um, someone will see there's a black man in prophecy, he's an immigrant, but the person cannot know whether I'm what I worship, or what religion, or what is my faith, uh, based on the color of my skin or how I look um, and also I don't dress specifically like any um, I don't wear any religious um, edifice that shows that this person is a Muslim or a Jew or a Christian or whatever it is yeah so it's difficult for mostly women and children
3: I, I just think about if I was as a woman if i was in another country standing at a bus stop and somebody spit in my face and said something to me and i didn't even understand them i can't even imagine how that would make me feel
5: right uh it's uh, um and there have been an instance where um a young woman was at a gas station here in portland i think that's about a year ago and uh um, so another person who was buying gas he happens to be um a veteran he's not from portland um he's actually not from Maine. he's from connecticut or somewhere and uh uh, he's been to iraq and he kept calling her all sort of names he said he was going to kill her and the gas station attendants have to literally um, hold on the door and tell him that he was not welcome there um the good thing was that he's already finished paying for his gas so there's no need for him to get into the building um they took his license plate number and handed it over to the police and uh it came out that um The car doesn't even belong to him. It's for his dad. And uh, um, um, he lives in Connecticut. He was a veteran. Um, I don't know how that case ended, but um, um, the police were working on it at the time that I know of it. So, um, yeah, it's difficult.
3: And it's so complicated because you have on one side people who may be refugees who have their own set of painful circumstances. Right. And then you have people who are veterans or have their set of their background and their experience and there's there's enough pain for there's enough pain to go around right but we all have to coexist we all have to live yeah here together so how do we make that happen
5: Uh, well uh... try to understand each other i believe i'm a firm believer that um, um... speaking to people irrespective of who they are or what your beliefs are uh, try at least to reach out to that person uh talk to that person understand where that person is um, coming from um, um um yeah uh having that conversation opens a lot uh, of doors and a lot of opportunities uh for us as humans uh to leave uh peacefully next to each other irrespective of what we believe or what we lean on Um, I believe that we all are looking for the same thing
0: thank you for listening to Love Main Radio we hope you'll join us next week